Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and I would like to welcome you to a very special five-part podcast series on the Hughes, Hubbard, and Reed Fall 2019 FCPA and Anti-Bribery Alert, which was recently released. In this five-part podcast series, we take a look at five separate areas that are touched upon in the alert. They include an overview of the alert, the U.S. FCPA component, the French developments in anti-bribery, anti-corruption enforcement and compliance programs, multilateral development banks and their role in the fight against bribery and corruption. And we conclude with a review of anti-bribery enforcement in Brazil, along with Brazilian authorities' embracement of compliance. The alert is a significant piece of research But more importantly than simply listing cases, it gives you a deep dive into the analysis of both anti-bribery, anti-corruption enforcement, but also policy announcements by regulators and other uh, commentary from countries outside the United States about the state of compliance and where it's going going forward. In this part three, I visit with partner Brian Silliman, who's also the managing partner of the firm's Paris office on developments in France over the past year. This special series on the Hughes Hubbard Fall 2019 FCPA and anti-bribery alert has been a special production of the Clients Podcast Network. Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox back again for another episode in our exploration of the Hughes Hubbard uh, FCPA 2019 alert. Today I have with me Brian Silliman. Brian is a partner at Hughes Hubbard, and he's also the managing partner in the Paris office. So, Brian, first of all, welcome, and thank you for taking the time to visit with me today. Great. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Brian, um, I had the privilege to come to France this past summer to speak at a compliance event, and it struck me that France is uh, evolving as fast, perhaps, as any other country in both anti-corruption investigation and enforcement and compliance. And um, uh, in many ways, is is moved to the forefront because of a variety of factors. Uh, but I wanted to ask you specifically uh, about the developments in anti-corruption enforcement in France this year, and what you've seen in terms of um, the really first significant uh, sanctions commission enforcement action. If you could tell us a little bit about that. Sure, absolutely, and you know I completely agree with your your assessment. It's it's amazing to see um, how quickly the market and the environment here has has shifted over the past couple of years. And I think um, we saw in 2019 some really significant um, activity uh, and the manifestation really of of the implementation and the adoption of, of Sapandu. Uh, which came into force about three years ago, uh, in the end of 2016. And one of the, the really interesting developments was the, the first um, decision issued by the Sanctions Commission of the AFA. Um, so just as a, a bit of a reminder, the AFA was an agency created out of Sapandu, uh, so it's fairly new. It's the Agence Française Anti-Corruption. And it has within its scope of, of activity the um, the right to conduct controls on companies that are subject to Sapandu. And these controls are essentially to assess whether the companies have implemented 
the elements of an effective compliance program that are required under the SAPANDU legislation. Um, to the extent that the AFA believes that they have not done so, it can bring uh, sanctions uh, against those companies, which ultimately are decided before a commission, uh, the Sanctions Commission. And we saw the first of those cases this year in July uh, 2019. Um, to give you a bit of detail on it, uh, it involved a company that was uh, reported publicly at Sonipar. Um, and AFA took issue with a number of elements of the company's compliance program, asserting that they did not have uh, in place uh, a code of conduct, that they hadn't conducted effective due diligence, uh, that they did not have a robust uh, uh, anti-corruption risk mapping. And so all of these were um, used as the AFA's bases for bringing uh, sanctions uh, against this company. Um, the company, of course, contested uh, these various um, uh, observations, and ultimately the Sanctions Commission sided with the company and decided that uh, at the time of the sanctions hearing, uh, Sonopar had, in fact, uh, adopted elements of, an, of a compliance program that were considered uh, to be effective under SAPANDU. And what was the... Um the final result uh, that uh, compliance practice, or I guess perhaps the lessons compliance practitioners should take away from that, Brian? Yeah, I think there's there are a few. You know, on the one hand, it shows that the AFA uh, is willing to bring companies uh, before the Sanctions Commission, is willing to pursue sanctions when they believe uh, that companies have not adopted elements uh, of a compliance program as required under SAPANDU. Um, but another key takeaway, I think, is that um, the AFA has released guidelines on how they believe that companies should go about um, adopting and implementing the elements of a compliance program under the law. And those guidelines contain fairly detailed recommendations, for example, on how companies should conduct their anti-corruption risk mappings. What the, what the Sanctions Commission um, determined is that while those guidelines may be used um, as helpful guidance for companies, they are not themselves legally binding. And so there is discretion, there is uh, some flexibility in how companies go about uh, implementing their compliance programs as long as they're done uh, in good faith and with a, a good faith view of uh, prohibiting corruption. Brian, if I could turn now to a little bit different uh, focus, which is uh, the French equivalent of deferred prosecution agreements. Sitting here in the United States, it seemed to me this was a, a I don't want to say dramatic development, but at least a development that went in a little bit different direction from what we'd previously seen from French jurisprudence. Could you talk about the development of this strategy and how prosecutors might use it going forward? Absolutely, and I think you're right that it is um, it is a pretty dramatic development. The 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 CGIP, which is the Convention Judiciaire d'Intérêt Public, um, and, and as you say, is the sort of most closely associated with a, a DPA, um, was was pretty um, hotly contested during the passage of Sapandu. There was a lot of debate as to whether this type of mechanism was consistent with uh, French law. 
uh, was consistent with French practice, but it ultimately did come into force and and has been used on uh, seven or eight occasions um, involving companies that have engaged uh, not just in corruption but also uh, tax evasion or um, money laundering associated with tax evasion offenses. Um, what's what's really uh, interesting this year is that um, the French prosecutors and the AFA have issued uh, guidelines um, on the implementation of the CGIP process. And what these guidelines are intended to do is to provide clarity on the circumstances when companies will be eligible uh, to receive this type of, of transaction. Uh, so it is discretionary. Uh, it ultimately comes down to a decision of the prosecutors as to whether they feel that a company warrants um, resolution of offenses through a CGIP. But to see um, the French authorities issue guidance like this is, is quite, in my view, a sea change from the atmosphere and the attitude towards cooperation with, um, with regulators or with enforcement agencies uh, that existed several years ago. Uh, Brian, I, I really don't know you very well, but when I hear lawyers use words like game changer and sea change, um, as a lawyer, that communicates to me it's really a very dramatic change. So I was wondering if you might uh, give us a few thoughts of why you thought uh, the, the either the French legislature or the French judiciary or prosecutors would be willing to make this really dramatic change. Is it something along the lines of trying to uh, engender more cooperation with defendants or corporations, rather? Is it trying to uh, really come into line with other uh, national anti-corruption regimes such as uh, Clean Companies Act in Brazil, the UK uh, Bribery Act, or even the FCPAs, or something else going on? Yeah, well, I think there were uh, there are a few elements in play. You know, France, um, like a number of other countries, um, as a signatory to the OECD Convention, uh, was criticized uh, in past years for not doing enough on the enforcement front. You know, France has had a law prohibiting corruption uh, since the early 2000s, but was seen um, as not doing enough on the, uh, the enforcement side. Um, and we saw uh, here in France a number of large French companies pursued by the U.S. authorities and entered into deferred prosecution agreements or other resolutions by the U.S. authorities. And I think there was... Um, a view here within the French legal community and the French prosecutors that um, French prosecutors should be the ones uh, doing the enforcement and focusing on the enforcement of traditionally quote unquote French companies, you know, large French groups that are headquartered here. Um, to do that, I think there was a recognition that there needed to be a new mechanism for engaging with with companies uh, and for offering the opportunity of resolving things in a more uh, efficient fashion than had been the case historically. And so that's why I think um, there was significant debate around whether this type of, of legal mechanism was the right way to do that. Um, I think the, the idea is that it will um, give more control back 
into the hands of French prosecutors uh, and allow them to um, be more active uh, in enforcing uh, anti-corruption laws vis-a-vis -vis French and potentially non-French companies. Brian, for our uh, final point, I wanted to take things in a little bit different direction. And if I could introduce this next question with the following. We had a U.S. court case this summer where individuals were prosecuted uh, under the FCPA. And uh, the court found that the internal investigation was done at the behest of and at the direction of the U.S. Department of Justice, even though uh, lawyers uh, in private law firm had been hired by the company to do this internal investigation. And that set off a kind of an interesting debate here in the United States. And in studying the commentary on that, one of the commentators raised the point that this Im Im implicated international blocking statutes and most more specifically the French um, uh, blocking statute. And that led me to discover there was a French blocking statute. And uh, it seems to me that that now has ga gained greater importance. So I was w wanted to ask you, your perspective sitting in Paris, uh, what might revival of the French blocking statute mean for international anti-corruption uh, investigations and enforcement? Yeah, it's, you're exactly right. It has been uh, a topic of interest here. And, you know, the blocking statute um, has existed here for, for many years. It was first uh, implemented in 1968, actually, um, but has not been um, enforced frequently at all. There are only uh, one or two cases involving um, individuals who have been pursued uh, for violations of blocking statute, although it is a criminal, a criminal statute. Um, essentially, the idea behind it was to control the um, provision of information, uh, either sensitive information uh, that would affect French interests or information that was being provided to foreign uh, law enforcement agencies. And the idea being um, that it's not necessarily uh, illegal or prohibited to provide such information, but that it should go through uh, the MLAT process, you know, the Mutually Legal Assistance Treaty process, and through defined channels so that French authorities could um, could opine on whether such information should be provided to foreign authorities. Um, there's been a lot of focus on whether it is effective, um, and this goes to a broader view here that uh, the U.S., but maybe not just the U.S., but primarily has taken a very broad extraterritorial uh, approach in enforcing um, not just the anti-corruption laws, but also the sanctions legislation. Um, and so there's been talk about uh, increasing the sanctions uh, for violations of the blocking statute, also making it um, more uh, clear what exactly falls within the blocking statute and when uh, violations would be would be found and making a, a mandatory reporting obligation uh, to a French agency when requests were made uh, for information. And so if those enhancements are passed and they have not been yet, um, it could significantly impact the way that companies conduct their internal investigations, particularly here uh, in France or involving French individuals, um, among other things, you know, and having to, to make a, a mandatory reporting to a French agency 
um, about requests for information, which could in turn prompt French authorities to to begin investigations. Ryan, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time, but I've been visiting today with Brian Silliman, the managing partner for Hughes Hubbard Paris office and a partner at the firm. We've been looking at some of the key developments in anti-corruption investigations and enforcement in France for 2019, all wrapped around the Hughes Hubbard 2019 FCPA alert. Brian, I wanted to thank you again for taking the time uh, to visit with me. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you enjoyed this episode in our special five-part podcast series on the Hughes Hubbard Fall 2019 FCPA and anti-bribery alert. I've linked to it in the show notes, and I would urge you to check it out, download it, and read it at your leisure. There's lots packed into it. And of course, best of all is the price, which is it's free. The series has been a presentation of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.